0: So as we get started here uh, today, just a quick question. Do any of you know who Ben Vandermeer is? No? Really? You don't know Ben Vandermeer? (sighs) Come on, guys. I I would be surprised if you do. Uh, He's an actor who has been acting since uh, 2011. He has 54 acting credits to his name, which is actually quite a few. I mean, so he's, he's been in some things. So let me hit some of the highlights for you of Ben Vandermeer's career, just so you will know him and appreciate his artwork. Uh, he played young man in the movie One Shot. He played a businessman in the movie Game Changer. He was a Secret Service agent in The First Lady. He was man in car in Spider-Man No Way Home, Uh, injured American soldier in Lovecraft Country, Uh, police officer in Council of Dads, medic number one in American Soul, frat boy number two in Baby Driver, party male number one in the haves and the haves not, and fitness model four in Taibo Evolution. And now you're thinking, oh, That Ben Vandermeer. I got him confused with the other one that I don't know. Uh, uh, So you get the idea. As far as I can tell, 20 of his 54 acting credits, he is unnamed. Uh, And just because he is named in other parts, though, it does not mean that he was the main actor in any of those other 54 credits. In fact, you can probably watch something where his character actually has a name and never hear the name or never know who he is. Uh, his credits are better than everyone's favorite Anissa, Anissa Nile Johnson. I know, I know, she's got all the hits. 17 of her 29 credits are unnamed and she plays things like Bank Manager, and emotional church member, (laughs) which I find to be interesting, and of course, everyone's favorite, crackhead. But it got me to thinking about people in that line of work, and certainly every actor dreams of being the lead actor in a show or movie. You would love to see uh, the movie named, you know, the awesome Phyllis Johnson, and you're playing... Phyllis Johnson, not pedestrian number four. But there are so many actors we don't know who plays someone's, I don't know, these are real real roles here though, someone's uh, archery instructor, um, IRS coworker number five, and uh, maybe the voice of an asteroid. I think there is A part of all of us that would like to be uh, the main character in something we want to be uh, the person that the story's about or that the movie's about or who at least plays some sort of significant role in whatever story is being told we don't want to be bake teller number two or cashier number five imagine being cashier number five there are four other cashiers before you you are probably some speck at the back of the grocery store not really a part of the story and it this this makes me think a little bit about my life and i've been a, a pastor and minister for a long time And I know I've shared this with you before, but I have always wanted to be someone through whom God does something big. I have gone through periods of my life and my work and my job where I might not have said this to anyone or even known that I was thinking it at the time, but I had expectations for what God was going to do through me and what my part in the story was going to be. And there were times when I was younger where I wanted my name to be known for what God was doing through me. And I struggled with the fact that I wasn't necessarily meeting my own goals for myself or what I thought I would be doing or who I thought I would be in God's kingdom. But then I realized I don't like people, and it all became okay. (laughs) There's a part of us that wants to be the primary character. We want to be uh, called out like Abraham, where God starts something new through us, or, or, or maybe we want to encounter God like Moses did and be named as a deliverer of God's people. Maybe we want to be a a prophet or, or maybe we just want to be named and not to be crossing guard number three. Who needs three crossing guards? But most of the people, and I don't know if you've ever really thought about this, most of the people that we encounter in the Bible don't have big stories. And there are countless people who go unnamed in the story of what God has done in his creation. But in contrast to the actors we mentioned earlier, just because someone doesn't have a big story or may not be named, it doesn't mean that they aren't a part of something much bigger than themselves. And sometimes that's the hardest thing for me to remember is that even though I may not have reached the heights that I thought I would reach, that God is still doing something valuable in my life, that God is still doing something big in your life, even if you aren't named. Now, there are some big names in the Exodus story, none bigger, of course, than Moses. He's kind of essential to the story of the Exodus, but as the story starts, we find that it is unnamed people who paved the way for Moses to become Moses. And I want you to know right now, without the actions of these five unnamed women, Moses wouldn't have made it to chapter three. Think about that for a second. He never would have made it to chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles this morning, open them up to the book of Exodus. And we're going to start at the top here in Exodus chapter 1, but let me set the stage for you really quickly. The Exodus story takes place in Egypt, and Egypt had a leader whose name was... Now. Here's something interesting, which I don't know if you've ever considered. Which Pharaoh? He's not named. So if, if you're just reading the Exodus story, guess what? Pharaoh is not named. Store that away for a moment. We're going to come back to that later. Now, Pharaoh was considered to be a God by his people. He had absolute authority, and no one could question his judgment. And the Exodus narrative makes it clear that when this Pharaoh came into power, the uh, the Israelites and the Egyptians were living in the same space, and that happened because at the end of Genesis, Joseph has facilitated uh, the avoidance of the famine in Egypt. His family all moves over to Egypt, and they start to uh, create their own life there. But when this pharaoh, the pharaoh of the Exodus, comes into play, he doesn't know who Joseph is. And that's a problem. It's a problem that he doesn't remember what the leader of this group of people who are not Egyptians, what he did for Egypt. He had no loyalty or no sense for who they were they were simply a people that were living there in egypt so let's pick it up in verses 8 through 10 of exodus chapter 1. then a new king to whom joseph meant nothing came to power in egypt look he said to his people the israelites have become far too numerous for us come we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So it would seem at the time that the Egyptians and Jews were living in relative harmony together. There was just one problem. The Jewish population was growing too large. And Pharaoh feared that if something was not done to handle this problem then if there were any kind of civil unrest or if any enemy was able to sway the Jews over to their side, then Egypt would be in pretty serious trouble. Because what was a family of 70 people by the end of Genesis turned into a nation of 600,000 male adults? It was a problem for Egypt. Egypt. So Pharaoh, like any good leader, he wanted to act on behalf of his people, and he wants to act shrewdly, meaning he wants to put the interests of Egypt over the interests of anything else. So how is he going to deal with this group of people? What is his plan going to be? And the Israelites had not done anything wrong besides prosper, and they were only a hypothetical threat at this point. So Pharaoh had a lot of options in front of him, right? So his first kind of path to controlling this situation was to work the Israelites to death. So let's get something out of this. From verses 11 through 14 of chapter 1. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So step one is let's see how much work we can get out of them. And maybe that will bring them under control or at least kill off a certain part of their population who we just use up. And think about what we just read in those verses. They helped build two cities that were storage areas for the Egyptians. And there's something ironic about that, isn't there? Considering Joseph had made them store up things for their own good. And now the Israelites are being made to build these places. And the passage makes sure that we know this was not an easy situation for the Israelites because they were treated how? Ruthlessly. There was no Ruth in the way they were treated. They were not given uh, any care or consideration as they built those things, but something weird was happening because even though they were being worked so hard, they were not shrinking. They were growing. And this, again, just sort of magnifies the problem that they were growing stronger through this time. And so this period is important because it changed the dynamic between the Israelites and the Egyptian people. I mean, how can it not? If these people that you've lived beside, you, ens- beside, you enslaved them and work them as hard as you can, treating them as less than a person, and they are still growing and becoming more powerful. And so they begin to feel some sort of fear because the Egyptians are beginning to realize that they cannot break this people through ways that they would normally use. So that leads us to Pharaoh's next shrewd idea. And he wants to dig this problem out at the root. So, you know, he's sitting out on his patio, drinking a cup of coffee trying to figure out this Israelite problem, and what does he decide he's going to do? From verses 15 through 21. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipara and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So, God was kind to these lying midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous, and because the midwives fear God, he gave them families of their own. Okay, there's a whole lot of dumb in this story, in this part of the story, because Pharaoh's next plan is that he's going to have these two midwives kill all of the jewish male children and it's not clear from the text whether these two midwives are hebrew midwives or whether they were midwives to the hebrews it's not clear what their background is and we have their names but what else do we know about them Nothing, other than that they are midwives. But here's where the stupid with two O's starts to set in. Why are there only two midwives for all of the Jewish people, a group that is becoming more numerous than the Egyptians? Maybe they are ahead of an order order of midwives. I mean, that's a possibility. It's not really made clear to us. But regardless, Pharaoh's command was would have been impossible for these two women to carry out because how in the world could they manage genocide of the children that they're supposed to bring into the world he couldn't have reasonably reasonably expected these two women to police the entire Jewish population and certainly he couldn't have expected two Hebrew midwives to begin killing all of their own people on the order of the pharaoh. And furthermore, why would you attempt ethnic cleansing by killing all of the men? Because the baby, or the women are the ones that have the babies, right? And so that also is kind of a little weird. And so wouldn't it have gone better to kill the girls so that they couldn't reproduce. I mean, I, I get it. We're talking about killing children. I'm not trying to make light of that. But by killing all of the boys, they also weaken their labor force. So as they move forward, there's really, they're not left with a whole lot. But my favorite part of this story is what these two women tell him. Um, And it's made clear, even though we don't know their background or exactly who they are, that they feared God. And they refused to follow his command. So they made up the lamest excuse they could possibly come up with. Well, Pharaoh, we're trying. We just don't get there in time. And then the birth is all over, and we have nothing to do. So I don't know how we're going to help you with this. And, and somehow Pharaoh buys into this argument. But what's important about that exchange is that they made an important choice. And in contrast to Pharaoh, they chose basic human decency over the command of their king. And then they told him, you know what, we really can't or won't do this you have to come up with another option. And of course they did, if they're decent people at all, because who wants to kill a bunch of babies? It's, it's a horrible idea, and they say no. But they took a risk by defying Pharaoh. They stood up to the king on behalf of God's people, and here's then what's really fascinating. God rewarded them, and, and the wording of the story says that he rewarded them by giving them families of their own. Sometimes women in that era became midwives because they were unable to have children of their own. And the way that this passage is worded sure makes it seem like they didn't have families before they stood up for God and God's people, but now that they did, God gives them families. So in the middle of this, honestly, like huge risk, standing up to the king of the world as far as they know it and saying, we are not going to do this for you. They protected God's people. But this did not deter Pharaoh. He just simply broadened the plan. And what is an awful, terrible, no good, very bad declaration he says in verse 22 every hebrew boy that is born he says to all the people every hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the nile but let every girl live so he expects his own people as they are walking through town that if they see a jewish a hebrew baby they are to take that baby walk it to the river, and throw it in. I'm kind of glad he's not named. (laughs) Essentially, he was telling his own people to carry out genocide, and it's a horrifying thought that he was asking his people to police the Hebrew people in this way. And think about if they followed through with this, what that would do to the soul of the Egyptian people. That they are carrying these children down to the river and throwing them in. And it was into this world then that Moses was born. But keep in mind, he might not have ever had the chance to be born if these two midwives hadn't said, We can't, we're not going to stop the birth of these people. From Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, saying, I drew him out of the water. Okay. There are some really interesting things for us to note about this story. Number one, Pharaoh is trying to be shrewd, but he's a big idiot. But these now five women are being incredibly brave and intelligent about what they're doing. There are people being shrewd in this story, you see, and it's not Pharaoh. Moses is here named in the Exodus story, but as we saw in this chapter, Moses' mother, his sister, and Pharaoh's daughter are not named. Now, most scholars believe this was done on purpose in the telling of the story so that the emphasis would be put on Moses— Who is going to become again very important to the story of exodus but the writer also makes something very clear without the actions of these women what would have happened to Moses or unnamed baby number two that's what he would have been called you see and he would have just become another statistic alongside all of the babies of his generation who lost their lives. Only Moses is named at this point, and and it shows his importance. But we wouldn't even get to that part if it were not for these women who took definitive action on his behalf. And the first woman that we're introduced to is Moses' mother. Uh, She hid Moses' For three months and when she could hide him no longer she decided that she had to do something to protect him now have you ever noticed what's kind of ironic about what she's doing what is pharaoh commanded people do with all of the male hebrew babies throw them in the nile and what does she do she puts them in the nile but she makes this basket to protect him so that he will float down the Nile. Now, its we can't look at this action without understanding that this was a desperate move. I mean, honestly, what can you hope to accomplish by putting a three-month-old baby in a basket and putting it into the largest river close to you? nothing, right? But Moses' mom is acting on his behalf. She's trying to to prolong his life, And, and she's not abandoning him. She was putting him in the river, hoping that something would happen. So as much as it's desperate, we also have to recognize that there is an element of faith to this action. That that something can happen through this. Now, the Hebrew word for basket is used only in this story, here about Moses being put in the river, and in another story about a guy named Noah where it rained a lot. And it refers in that story to the ark. And in the original story, the ark was how humankind and All the animals on the land were saved. But this small ark is carrying the one who would deliver Israel from the people in Egypt. But at this point, he's a three-month-old baby. What does he need? He needs someone to make it possible for him to get older. And his mom does the only thing she can think of, which is... I've hid this kid for three months. If I take him out into public, there's a possibility he's going to be thrown into the Nile. So we learn from this that at least on a limited level, some of the Egyptians are taking these Hebrew babies and throwing them in the Nile, right? So it's better for her to put him into this river and at this point, Moses' sister, who we, if we read through the story, is probably Miriam, who is named much later, is following the basket down the river because she's going to keep her eye on her baby brother. Now, I want you to imagine, we're, we're not told specifically how old she is, but let's just say she's 11. Somewhere between, you know, 8 and 16, Right? And she is running alongside the river, watching her little brother float in this basket. Now, if she didn't have some sort of anxiety disorder before this, she certainly has it after. Seeing what's going on and seeing how her brother's life is at risk. What if someone found it? What would happen if he got stuck somewhere? What was she supposed to do? What was she supposed to do if, you know, some sort of, I don't know, crocodile (laughs) headed toward the basket? And then what was she thinking when this basket with a Hebrew male baby floats into Pharaoh's palace? Well, she does what anyone would do she hid in the bushes waiting to see what was going to happen. So we know that she was very brave. And so now the situation shifts again. So this baby, (laughs) this basket, is floating into Pharaoh's palace where Pharaoh's daughter and all of her attendants are out there, and she is taking a bath. And she sees the basket, and she walks over and opens it, and what does she see? She sees a Hebrew baby. And she knows it's a Hebrew baby. And as she is discovering this baby, and we can only imagine pulling him out of the basket, Moses' sister pops out of the bushes. And she presents a plan. She presents a plan to Pharaoh's daughter that is... Ambitious and brilliant. Hey, why don't I bring someone to nurse the baby? Because, you know, you're not in position to nurse right now. So why don't I go get someone who can do this? Now, given what we know about the women in the story and how they're handling it, is there any way that Pharaoh's daughter didn't know that Moses' mother was going to come back with the girl that was hiding in the bushes, watching this basket float down the Nile? I have a hard time believing she didn't pick up on that. And I have a hard time believing she didn't pick on that up on that because of how the rest of the story goes. So she comes out and presents this plan, and it is in fact a shrewd plan. And it's narrated in such a way that we do not realize the significance of what is happening for a Hebrew slave to approach a princess who is supposed to, by the order of her father, kill this baby on sight and say, What if we don't kill him? What if he stays alive? What if I bring someone to you to nurse him? What if she takes care of him until you're ready for him? And Pharaoh's daughter says, Yeah. Let's do it. And in many ways to me then, Pharaoh's daughter is kind of one of the most fascinating characters in this story. Does she know what she's doing? Yes, we have no reason to believe otherwise. So she knows what she's doing on purpose. And in some ways, she is the hero of this part of the story. Even though everyone has acted shrewdly and bravely, don't get me wrong. But without this woman acting on behalf of this baby, he doesn't live another minute, you see. They're already in the Nile. All she has to do is take him out of the basket, move him to the right, and drop him. And it's over. But she does not do that. She was tender, she was intelligent, and she was responsive to the needs of the other people, whereas her father was nothing like any of those things based on what we've seen so far. And the act of saving this baby meant disobeying a royal command. And she was not alone when this happened either. So not only did she have to keep this to herself, but so did everyone else that was attending to her at the time. But she still acted with compassion and kindness towards this child, and she agreed to the plan, which put Moses back into his parents' house until he was old enough for some of the heat of this whole situation to wear off. And I can only imagine she goes to dinner with her dad one day and she has this six-year-old little boy with her. It's like, who's that? That's my son. Oh, anything else happened today? <laughs> uh, you know, we don't, we don't know. But the decision to put the baby back into the parents' house when he was old enough was a really good decision. And then Moses' mother could say that she was not the mother, therefore he's not a Hebrew baby, she's just his nurse, and he could go on living. And then here's what else is remarkable, she doesn't forget about him, and when he's old enough, he goes and lives with her in the palace, and she raises him as her son, in fact, she names him. Pharaoh's daughter names Moses. It was God who changed the name of Abram and Sarai. It was God who gave the name Isaac to the first Jewish child. It was God who changed Jacob's name to Israel. But in this story, it's this Egyptian woman that names the deliverer of God's people. He did not go by the name his parents called him. Again, we can't assume he's baby number two. He went by the name that his adopted mother gave him. In Egyptian, it is close to the word child or baby. and In Hebrew, the name Moses means to draw out. And God calls him by this name. There's something important that I think we can pull from this story. The story of Moses would not have happened if it were not for the actions of five incredibly brave and in at least four out of the five cases, faithful people. But we also are reminded of something before Moses becomes Moses. And that is, Moses doesn't become Moses in a vacuum. He doesn't just one day wake up and is the deliverer of God. And it also shows us, though, that Moses, the way this starts, Moses is not the main character of the story. In fact, the story of the Exodus is not about him and what he's going to do. Because he's only alive because other people acted on behalf of God in his life whether we know their names or not. He's not the main character. God is. And what makes Moses as an adult remarkable is what God does through him. When Moses doesn't want God to do things through But guess what? Pharaoh's not writing the story. Moses isn't writing the story. This is God's story. And while we might have some desire to be Moses, we have to understand that God does things that are just as big through people whose names we never know. And it makes me think that whatever time I have wasted wanting to do something big or meaningful for God or wanting my name to be known for how God is working through me, I run the risk of missing what God is actually doing in the world around me. And that my part, named or not, may ensure that God can do as he wants and wishes as he moves forward. So maybe I'm okay being lifeguard. Number seven. Maybe I'm okay. Well, I don't want to be crackhead. But maybe I'm okay playing these bit roles. Because the fact of the matter is I'm in a big story. And I'd rather be in the big story than sitting on the side waiting for the big story to happen to me, amen? So maybe the person that I wanna be most like In this story are these incredible women who risked their lives and got very little credit for it, but moved God's plan forward. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a God who works through us. We are grateful for the ways, big and small, that you move in our lives. But Father, may we not forget that you are the author, the creator, the writer of this story, and that, God, any part we get to play is an honor and a blessing. And God, may we be grateful that you use us at all, for you are good and mighty and powerful. And we are grateful that you we are a part of your story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.